to invite you to turn with me to the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 9. For those of you that uh, are just learning to find your way around the New Testament, that's the second of the books in the New Testament, Matthew and then the Gospel of Mark. I'd like to begin reading with uh, verse 30. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child and had him stand among them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Teacher, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Don't stop him, Jesus said. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. I tell you the truth. Anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. And if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. If your hand causes you to sin... Cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. Now, at first reading, you might come to the conclusion that our Lord has a number of topics that he's addressing in this text, and uh, Mark, for various reasons, put them all together, perhaps because they all occurred at uh, essentially the same time. But I don't think that's true. I think there's one idea that governs this entire text. It's this idea of little ones and caring for little ones and the danger of hindering these that are groping their way up in, into the light and the seriousness of thwarting and frustrating people that, uh, that are growing on toward God. There are a number of uh, 
number of hinges, number of connecting thoughts. There is this idea of doing things in Jesus' name, and there's this idea of little ones who believe in Him. And then he talks about judgment and fire and then salting things with fire. And it's, it's all tied together around this one idea of caring for, for little ones. Now, the first, uh, the first paragraph sets the stage for us. We're told that they, they that is Jesus and uh, his disciples, left that place, the foothills of Mount Hermon, and they made, made their way down through Galilee, which is the northern part of, of the land of Canaan. They were on their way to Capernaum. Basically, they were on their way to Jerusalem. Luke tells us at this point that Jesus had set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem and die. And as they journeyed through, uh, through Galilee, our Lord and his disciples skirted around the large cities and the centers of population, and he was taking the back roads and the, and the seldom-traveled uh, trails, not because he was afraid, but because, as Mark says, he wanted to teach them. He had some things to say to his disciples before, uh, before he went to Jerusalem. And what he wanted to do for them is to spell out the implications of the cross. We're told that uh, he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. This is not the first mention of his death. As you know, back in chapter 8, he referred to his death, his death and ours. That authentic Christianity means dying every day, taking up your cross and, and following him. And what he wanted to do was spell out completely the implications of that death, his and ours. And that's what he does throughout the rest of the, of the Gospel of Mark. Here he adds a new element, this idea of betrayal. And I think for myself, he's reaching out again to Judas. Interesting, you know, our Lord knew from the very beginning who would betray him. And he kept reaching out toward Judas, trying to get hold of his heart, draw him in. One of the interesting things about our Lord's relationship with Judas is that no one knew who the betrayer was, though Jesus knew from the very beginning. When Jesus and his disciples were gathered in the, in, in the upper room, he said, uh, he said to them, one of you will betray me. And they all looked around, around the room and they said, is it I? Is it I? Not one of them looked at Judas and said, I know who the culprit is because... Uh, See, Jesus never treated Judas any differently than he treated anybody else in the apostolic band. He loved him to the end. And even the so-called sop, the piece of bread uh, dipped in, uh, in gravy that he handed to, to, to uh, Judas was, again, our Lord reaching out for this man to draw him in. So now you, you have this, uh, this note of the betrayal introduced alongside this idea of his death and his in his resurrection, and we're told the disciples didn't understand. They were afraid to ask. They weren't afraid to ask because they thought that our Lord would shut them down. Our Lord welcomes questions, even very foolish questions, even dumb questions. He, he loves to respond to our questions. They didn't ask because they were in a state of denial. They didn't want to die. No one wants to die. They don't want to face their own death. And so they weren't asking questions. So at some point, our Lord must have uh, stopped the... the uh, the conversation about his death, and he went on to other things, and they made their way down to Capernaum, and uh, they probably lodged in uh, Peter's house, which was located right on the shores of the Sea of Galilee in Capernaum. The archaeologists have actually found what they think are the foundations are almost certain that it's the foundations of Peter's house, lovely little spot right on the shore of the Sea of uh, Galilee, and that's where our Lord uh, 
loved to live and spend his time with Peter and his, his family and, and the other, uh, other disciples. And uh, I suppose it was at dinner. They were all sitting around, you know, what it's like to eat with your friends. And you're yucking it up and razzing each other. And all the whimsy and humor and good times that accompany a, a meal like that with good friends. And out of that conversation, right in the midst of it, our Lord said to the son, Oh, yes, he said, uh, What were you fellows talking about as we were traveling down from, from Mount Hermon? He knew very well what they were talking about. They'd been debating who was the greatest. They were playing mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest of us all? And uh, we don't know how he was privy to that conversation. Perhaps he overheard it. Perhaps the Spirit simply told him what they were saying. But he was well aware of, of what they'd been debating. Now, I don't know why that particular topic came up. I surmise it's because of what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. Our Lord took Peter, James, and John... With him on that particular occasion, it was to them that his glory was manifest. And then he told them on the way down, don't tell anybody what you saw. And uh, when the other disciples asked Peter, James, and John what happened, I'm sure they must have said, well, we're, you know, we're just not permitted to say. And there is this sort of this sense of being on the esoteric edge. We have a little bit of information that nobody else has. And uh, it, it must have elevated them in the opinion of others and perhaps in their own opinion. We don't know. I don't know what was going on, but I, I surmise that's what happened. And so this debate began to rage. Who is the greatest of us all? And our Lord says, what, what were you all talking about on the way? And I'm sure he said it with a twinkle in his eye. And what he got back was the sounds of silence. Nobody said a thing. Because I don't think any of us can stand before the Lord and say, I want to be great. I want to be rich. I want to be powerful. You cannot look the Lord in the face and make statements of that nature. And no one, not one of the disciples, dared to bring up the topic. But our Lord knew. He knew. Our Lord has his eyes on us all the time. He looks at us and he looks right through us and he knows exactly what's going through our hearts. And he still loves us and he still lovingly corrects us. And so our Lord, seeing this as another teachable moment, gathered the disciples and sat out. And that's very significant. It looks like a throwaway line in Mark, but it isn't. He sat down. That was the classic posture for a teacher in Israel, in the Greek world, Roman world, all over the Middle East. Teachers sat down. We still use that term today in, 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 the, in education, a chair. We refer to a chair. It's a place of authority which a teacher sits, either literally or, or symbolically. Jesus sat down like a rabbi would sit down. Now, our Lord didn't teach much in that particular position. He usually taught as they walked along the sea, and he looked at birds and fish, and he talked about sores. He, he, he talked as he walked. But on this occasion, he sat down because he had something very important to say. It's as though our Lord said, all right, gentlemen, listen up. This is the lesson for today. This is the most important thing I could tell you. And uh, he says to them, if you want to be first, you must be the very last and the servant of all. You would expect him to sit down and say, gentlemen, we're going to talk about uh, networking and power lunching and dressing for success. 
and uh, the art of intimidation, because that's uh, the sort of thing that our world recognizes. That's the way to gain power and prestige and honor. You scramble and you push and you make it to the top. And our Lord says, no, you have to be very, very small. You have to humble yourself. You have to be last. That, that, that's the way to, to be greatest. You have to be the servant of all. Let me, uh, let me read something that I wrote. As I've often said, if I don't quote myself, nobody else will. Remember that we're still talking about this, the implications of the cross. And we're going to go back to that particular notion again and again. Because that's what Jesus is trying to get across to the disciples and to us. It's through being last that you're first. It's through serving that you become great. It's through seeking that obscure place that nobody sees and notices, nobody recognizes that uh, is the real mark of an authentic believer. You'd think that if you went about dying, you'd die, but you don't. It's the other way around. Those who try to live are the ones who die. Those who insist on their rights, who never give in, who lavish care on themselves, who think only of their own place, who are obsessed with looking out for themselves, are almost always insecure and unhealthy. But if we die to ourselves for Jesus' sake, our self-worth will never suffer. God grants worth to us. Those who feel most secure and most significant are those who have given themselves up for others. Jesus was right. Trying to find yourself is suicidal. The only way to find yourself is to lose yourself. Only what dies can be resurrected. Dying is the only way to go. This principle holds up in every phase of life. We gain ground by giving it up. If we look for love, we'll not find it. But if we give love away, we'll be loved. If we search for a friend, we'll not find one. But if we befriend another, we'll have a friend. If we're emotionally down and out and looking for a lift, we will look forever. But if we look for ways to encourage others, we'll be encouraged. If we think others should serve us, we've got another thing coming. But if we serve others for Christ's sake, our real needs will be met. It's odd that it works this way. It's just backward to us, but that's the way it is. Jesus said so, and he lived it. The Son of Man came to give his life a ransom for many. He was dying all of his life. You know, the world looks at, uh, looks at, at advancement in terms of a, of a pyramid. The closer you get to the apex... The fewer people you serve and the more people are serving you. You've, you've heard men and women say that. We have X, I have X number of people under me. And if you get to the very top, you don't serve anybody. Everybody serves you. Our Lord just turns that pyramid right on his head. And he himself lies at the apex of the pyramid. And he served everyone. And he was the greatest of all. And he says what our Lord is talking about. It's seeking obscurity. It's setting aside your own rights and ministering to others, not because you're compelled to, not because you have some obsessive need to be needed, but simply because freely you're doing this out of love for our Lord Jesus and because there's nothing asked of us that was not first asked of him. He himself lived it. Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. It's the only way to go. And our Lord did the most wonderful thing. He, he used 
I think the greatest illustration of this principle that I could ever think of, there's a little boy running around the house. I like to think it was Peter's son. Because Peter, Peter's, you know, is really the author of this gospel. Mark was his scribe. It was Peter's memoirs, his reminiscences that are in this gospel. And a little boy running around the house, and I'm sure it was his little boy because, because Mark, of all the gospel writers, is the only one who mentions that Jesus put his arms around him. And I think Peter couldn't forget that. A little rascal, probably a little, little chip off the block, block, little rusty boy just like Peter, and he's running around the house, and Jesus just put his arms around him. Dragged him up on his lap. And he said, if you serve one of these little ones, if you receive one of these little ones, you welcome one of these little ones, you accept one of these little ones, you love one of these little ones, and you're doing it to me, and you're doing it to the Father. I've just had a little one running around our our house all this past week, our little granddaughter, the youngest of our granddaughters, was here for a week. Brian and Joe came over from Arlington, Washington. And it was nice to have them there, but really nice to have Sarah Elizabeth. I mean, that's really what we wanted them over here for. <laughs> and uh, it was just interesting that I, and significant to me that I was studying this passage because I really saw firsthand what it means to love a little child. It takes a lot of work. A lot of work. It's hard work. Carolyn babysat a couple of days. And uh, when I came home in the evening, she was absolutely woofed. I mean, it's a lot of work. You don't get much affirmation, much feedback from children. They don't write thank you notes, and uh, they don't enhance your reputation or your ego very much. You don't get uh, high marks for ministering to little children. But Jesus says that is one of the most significant things that you can do. That's more important than being uh, president of IBM or Microsoft or um, doing any of the things that the world recognizes as greatness. When we stand before the Lord, what he acknowledges is your willingness to serve one of these little ones that believe on him. Care for them, encourage them, help them, minister to them, serve them. I have such a deep appreciation for people who work with children, mostly unacknowledged and unappreciated. Don't get too many kudos. Very significant ministry. Those of you that minister in the Sunday school or with children out in the community, those of you that are teachers in the public schools, teachers in the Christian schools. I think one of the greatest travesties is, is our society's unwillingness to pay a decent wage to teachers. It gives some indication of how distorted our values are. Because I think one of the most strategic ministries going is to little children. And I think of you homemakers, you know, who, uh, I remember Carolyn's comment, I was, you know, I was working with university students at the time, and, and there were a lot of exciting things going on at the campus, and, and I'd come home, and the most intelligent conversation she'd had all day was with a four-year-old or a six-year-old, and, and nobody thought much of the contribution that she was making, but that's, that was her ministry. And I just want to encourage you people who are homemakers that that's a very, very significant ministry. Our Lord sees what you're doing and what you're doing. You're doing for our Lord and for his Father. But, you know, I also think that though Jesus was thinking literally of little children, I think he was thinking symbolically of of believers, these we're little ones that believe on him. We all are. Jesus referred to his disciples as children. John picks up that uh, figure in his book, and he talks about little children. He's talking to adults. We're all a bunch of beginners. 
We all have a lot to learn. We're all struggling up toward the light. We're having a hard time of it. We stumble and fall down. We're trying to learn how to walk. And I think what our Lord is telling us is that we are to be servants in the highest service that we can render. is service to one another, ministering to one another, helping one another along the way, encouraging, ministering, serving other members of the body of Christ. There's no greater service. It's more important than anything else you can do. Since the very beginning of human history, people have been trying to find themselves in the work world. You will never find it. To make a difference whether you're a man or a woman, you will never find yourself in the marketplace because the ground is cursed. But you'll find yourself in God and in serving his people. That's where that deep sense of worth that Jesus is talking about comes from. Now, uh, what follows appears to be an interruption. John says, teacher, and he just broke into the conversation. And I don't know how many times I've read the Gospel of Mark and wondered, you know, what's the connection here? It seems so disjunctive. It's almost as though John's mind drifted off someplace else and then he introduces a topic that's not germane to what Jesus is saying. But I don't think so. For the first time as I read this, I realized what was going on. The coin dropped. The light dawned. John realized that he had hindered a little one. Do you remember what Jesus said? Uh, let me go back and read what Jesus said. Uh, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And it suddenly dawned on John that there was, there was a little one that he had not welcomed. He had, he had not accepted. Someone was casting out demons in Jesus' name. And he wasn't part of the apostolic band. He didn't have everything right. He didn't use the right words. He came from outside. He wasn't part of the inner circle. And uh, John saw him casting out demons, and he, it was obvious he was trying to do something in the name of Jesus. He was moving toward the light, and John put a stop to it, or tried to. And I think at this point, John realized what he was doing, that he had not welcomed one of, one of these little ones. And, and in effect, what he's saying is, I, I saw this... Uh, this, this young man or young woman casting out demons, and I, and I, I, I hindered him. I, I did wrong. I was wrong, wasn't I? And uh, Jesus picks up at that point, picks up the topic again at that point. Um, don't stop him, Jesus said. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next minute say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Interesting statement. Can't be neutral about Jesus, either for him or against him. If people are moving toward our Lord Jesus ever so slightly, we need to encourage them. That's what Jesus is saying. Don't thwart them. Don't frustrate them. Even though they're very different. Even though they have a different set of uh, theological beliefs. Even though they come from the other side of the tracks. Even though they don't have the education that you have. They don't dress like you. They don't look like you. They don't smell like you. Jesus says, receive them. Welcome them. Fan into flame that you have the slightest interest in spiritual things. Don't shut them down. Because if they're not against you, they're for you. They're moving in that direction. So in, in, encourage them Encourage them on. Because if you welcome one of these little ones, you're welcoming me and you're welcoming the one who sent me. Jesus says, don't stop them. I tell you the truth, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ 
will certainly not lose his reward. And then he shifts into one of the sternest sections that you'll find anywhere in the Gospels. He says, if anyone causes one of these little ones to believe in me, in, who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a huge millstone tied around his neck. Do you understand what Jesus is saying? It is a very serious thing to hinder the spiritual progress of someone who is moving toward faith. A very serious thing. You know, I I think of... um, I think of people that are purveying pornography. I think of people that are trying their best to discredit the person of Christ. Those that... uh, not only disbelieve, but are teaching disbelief. It's a very serious thing. It's a very serious thing in a university classroom, for example, to teach unbelief. If you hinder one of those little ones, it would be better for you, Jesus said, that a millstone be hanged around your your neck and you be cast into the sea. O. Henry tells an awful story. I don't know what O. Henry's spiritual state was. I don't think he understands God very well, but it's a sort of story that really shakes you up. He told a story about a man who uh, had no time for his little girl. He was busy, really didn't care about her much, and she'd come in the room, and, and he would be distracted, and he'd tell her to go outside and play, go outside and play, go out in the streets and play. And so when she became a teenager, that's what she did. She went out on the streets, and she became a prostitute, streetwalker. She died and went to heaven, and uh, when she stepped through the gates of uh, heaven, Peter was standing there, and it's been a long time since I've read the story, so I may not have all the details right, and I couldn't find it. I tried to look it up this week. He gets to heaven, and and uh, Peter turns to the Lord, and he says, should we let her in, or should we send her to hell? And Jesus said, go find her father and send him to hell. Well, you know, O'Henry didn't understand the nature of God, didn't understand his loving character his relentless love, because he would go after that father, and he would draw and pull and tug and woo and do everything he could to draw that man to himself. He wouldn't just dispatch him off off to hell. But it does give us some glimpse of the seriousness with which God views our foolishness and these, these, the things that we can do to hinder the growth of, of young believers. Very serious thing. In fact, uh, if I understand his argument, what he's saying is we must be very tender, very caring, very loving toward uh, God's little children, and very tough on ourselves. He says if your eye is causing others to, to stumble, if the things that you're looking at, the magazines you keep around your house, the movies that you bring in and, and view in front of your children or in front of Older little children, adult little children, then uh, need to pluck our eye out, not, not literally, symbolically. Be tough on yourself. If your hand, the things that you're doing, cause you to, uh, to cause other people to stumble and cut it off. If places you go cause others to stumble, cut, cut your foot off. You know, just be tough on yourself. You're going to be tough on anybody. Don't be tough on these little... Struggling believers, be tough on yourself. Be tender with them, but be hard on yourself. And then he says an interesting thing. He says it's better to cut your hand off, better to cut your foot off, better to pluck your eye out, than to go to hell. Now, uh, I'm going to walk through a minefield here, okay? So uh, stick with me. You don't have to believe any of this. This is not gospel. This is opinion, okay? So 
And you know that's always true. You, you, you have to search the scriptures for yourself. Let me say at the outset, I believe in hell. I believe in hell because Jesus did. The Bible teaches it. I believe in a literal hell. I think, along with C.S. Lewis, that hell is ultimately a provision of God's love. God lets people have what they want. If they don't want God in their life, then he grants them that, that wish. Um, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians that hell is basically exclusion from the power and the presence, eternal exclusion from the power and the presence of his might. In other words, hell is the absence of God, the absence of everything that makes life worth living. We have never experienced the exclusion of God and his power in this world. There's some joy and love and happiness in this world. But if people don't want God, then he gives them what they want, and they will go out into eternity without God. And they make their own hell, I'm convinced. I, I believe in hell, so you understand that? We got that clear? Okay, good. Now I'm going to go on. Here's, here's where we're in the realm of opinion. I don't think that Jesus is talking about hell here. He uses an unusual word. Well, let me say, first of all, if he is talking about hell, he is talking about those so-called believers who are unwilling to ever sit in judgment on their sin. If we can go on causing other people to stumble, scandalizing young believers, and we are not repentant and we are indifferent to the destruction that we're doing to others, then we are probably not believers. We need to take that very seriously. But I don't even think Jesus is talking about that here. He uses a strange word. It's a word that he doesn't normally use. The New Testament writers don't use for hell. They usually use the word Greek, the Greek word Hades. Hades is our word. Here he uses Gehenna. Uh, Gehenna is a contraction of, of, of two Aramaic terms, Gay Valley Hinnom, Valley of Hinnom. It was a geographical location. If you go to Jerusalem today, a guide will take you through the city, ask him where uh, Gay Hinnom or Gehenna is. He'll point over the wall to the south down in the, in the valley there. It was, a, it was a trash heap, garbage dump of Jerusalem. Uh, they would clean all of the uh, filth out of the city and take it down to, uh, the, to Gehenna. And, and at some point in the history of Jerusalem, Gehenna caught fire and it burned and the smoke uh, continued throughout Jesus' time. And it became a very vivid uh, uh, metaphor, I think, for hell, a kind of a cosmic trash heap. But because of what Jesus says about the fire not dying and because of what he moves on to talk about, about being salted with fire, I do not think he's talking about eternal uh, judgment here. I think he's talking about the fact that God is a consuming fire. He's burning all the time. He's consuming what cannot be purified in us, and he's, what, and he's purifying what cannot be consumed. In other words, grace that you are saved through faith, and that faith not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Faith is a gift. God has to give it. But we need to come with that mustard seed-sized faith and say, Lord, help me help my faith to grow. He doesn't ask for great gobs of faith on the front end. He just asks us to come and put ourselves in his hands. That's all we can do. Remember the, remember when we were studying uh, Joshua? And the priest came to the, to the Jordan, and I commented on that those priests didn't run down the bank and throw themselves into the river. It was at flood tide. There's no way they'd get across that river. What they did is put their little pinky in the water, and, and it shrank back. And, they, and with each step, the waters receded until they walked across on dry land. But God didn't ask them to take a great step of faith. All they needed was, was little toe faith or ankle-deep faith. 
however you want to describe it. That's all he asks of us, just to come to him and say, Lord Jesus, help me, help me, help me. Have mercy on me. I want to believe. Help my faith uh, to grow. And uh, in this case, the Lord, uh, the Lord healed his boy dramatically. Um, and as I say, that's really just a small part of the, of the story. Judging in us those things that tend to detract others from the gospel, he will deal with us if we will permit him to do so. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 that if we don't judge ourselves, he will judge us. And it's always loving. It's always tender. He's, he's, he's always careful and deft with his touch. But he's always judging. He's always dealing with sin in our lives, and specifically those things that hurt us and hurt others. And uh, I think this is what he's talking about here. He's saying that he is burning away the dross in us, the filth, the trash, the things in us that make us less than effective in our service for him. Now, there are three statements that Jesus makes, verses 49 and 50, that summarize the process. Everyone will be salted with fire. That means that every one of us, every one of us here, is being acted upon by God. He lovingly is dealing with us, with our thoughts and with our actions, and he is salting us with fire. Now, why does he change the metaphor? I don't know. He does seem to mix metaphors here, except salt is a good picture of, uh, of uh, fire. It's chemical fire in one sense. It purifies. That's what it was used for in the ancient world. It was used to, uh, to arrest the spread of corruption in meats and other perishable items. And uh, it's a good picture of of what God is doing. He's salting us with fire. He's burning out the dross in us, the, the things that ought not to be there. Everyone, he says, will be salted with fire. He's graciously at work in me. He's graciously at work in you. When we sit in judgment on sin in our own lives, then he doesn't have to. But if we're unwilling to do so, then he begins in various ways, perhaps through going by going through some of these real tough times and we see ourselves as we really are and we see how damaging we are to other people and we're willing to repent of our sin and ask for his forgiveness and ask him to begin to reconstruct us. Everything, he says, will be salted by fire. And so we need to salt ourselves. We need to take, take this lesson for today seriously and have salt in ourselves. But he says that salt has to be the real thing. It can't be phony. Because he sees our hearts. He sees our motives. He knows what's going on within us. And so it, it can't be just some kind of superficial judgment. It has to go all the way to the heart. And uh, in those areas where we simply are not capable of dealing with sin, then we need to expose that sin to him. Perhaps some obsessive trait, some compulsive habit that, that uh, controls you, that needs to be brought out into the light and exposed to his, his view. And uh, has to be the real thing. And then he says an interesting thing. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. The peace is sequential. When you have salt in yourself, you have peace. Now, here's what I think he's saying. I don't know about you, but I, I, I have this uh, terrible penchant for trying to fix everybody else. Um, the problem in relationships with God's children, in my mind, tends to be one of God's children. It's what they're doing to me 
that's disrupting my peace. And so I, I, I want to fix them. And what Jesus is saying is, no, 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 fix yourself. Fix yourself. There's only one person in the world you can do very much about, as Lewis says, and that's yourself. Fix yourself. Have salt in yourself. You see, it's precisely what Jesus said on another occasion when he talked about the, trying to get the speck out of our brother's eye and, and we, we keep hitting him upside the head with a two-before that's in ours. And Jesus says, no, you hypocrite, get the two-before out of your eye. Get the beam out of your eye. Then you can see to get the speck out of the other person's eyes. That's the key to human relationships. Instead of trying to fix another person, let God fix you. Have salt in yourself. And the result is peace, both subjectively and objectively. Subjectively, in the sense that we feel peaceful, objectively, in that it produces peace. That's the key to harmony in a marriage. If you spend your whole uh, married life trying to fix your mate, you're going to create nothing but distress and upset and hurt in your marriage. If you work on yourself, you'll have peace. I find myself that, uh, you know, I get defensive and and I want to protect my own interests and I want to... I want to def- uh, affirm my own rightness and all it does is make me uptight and angry and I lose my sense of peace but if I'm willing to take a good hard look at myself and say Roper what are you doing that contributes to this problem Lord deal with that issue the result is peace both within me and and between the, the two of us it's true if in your relationship with your parents if you're having trouble with your parents don't try to fix your parents fix yourself if you're having trouble on the job uh, don't try to fix everybody around you Fix yourself. And in our relationships with all of God's little children within the church. That's our goal. Have salt in ourselves, he says. Now, do you understand? Let me go back again and just conclude by trying to tie this all together. you understand the theme? He's talking about little children. But he's not talking just about little children. He's talking about grown-up little children, you and me. And he's talking about dying and serving. And what he's saying is the greatest service you can perform in this world is to serve God, yes, and serve his little children. Minister to them, even though they may not be like you, even though they have traits and habits and things about their lives that really bother you, then you minister to them. Even if they're having a hard time struggling up out of their darkness, then you you lend a little light to their path. Minister to them. Serve them. Be tender. Be kind. Be comforting. Be tolerant of others. But be tough on yourself, because it's a very serious thing to, um, uh, to hinder a, 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 another, another one of God's little children. Very serious thing. So what can we say? Well, Lord, cleanse my heart. You know, I'm, I'm in there with you. I, I step all over people's toes. I, I do things that hinder. All I can do is say, Lord, help me. Help me in this area. Help me to see, uh, help me to see what I am and then begin to deal with those issues in my life. Now, let me say one other thing. And with this, uh, we're done. Um, in this matter of service. The world is condescended to believing that, uh, that prestige and honor and wealth and glory are the things that give meaning to life. Remember the song we sang? Uh, it's the Lamb who was slain. The Lamb who was slain, who's worthy of power and glory and honor. It's the Lamb who was slain who has ultimate significance. And it's dying for others that will give ultimate meaning to your life. So uh, we need to get that straight. It's serving 
that is most significant. Serving here, perhaps serving your your children at home for the time that uh, God has called you to be a homemaker. You may not always uh, be a homemaker, but to the extent that God has called you, then serve there. Perhaps it's serving your your elderly parents who uh, who've moved into your home and, and there's a little bit of stress, a little bit of strain. Serve them, minister to them, love them. Perhaps it's serving our children here in the community or in the church or serving with a young life club or with some other high school or junior high organization or or working with senior citizens or working with university students or working with men or women or whatever it is invest your life in this in this all significant way or for some of you it may mean going overseas and losing yourself being very very obscure never being known or recognized or acknowledged but serving in some place where God is is opening hearts where he's raising up little children that are moving toward him so the real question for all of us is not who are we going to serve, because as Bob Dylan says, you've got to serve somebody. But the uh, real question is, when are we going to begin to serve the people that God puts in front of us? Just start where you are. That's all. Right where you are. And say, God, I'm available. Use me to minister to that person, and then he will show you the next step. And you will be doing the most eternally significant thing that anyone could ever do. Let's pray. Father, servanthood does not come easy for any of us. We don't like to give ourselves away. We want to take and receive and be ministered to and be served. It seems so backward to us that we should uh, we should try to lose ourselves, but we've learned to trust you. You tell us the truth. You are the truth. And you, you reveal a level of reality that no one else sees. So help us to disbelieve what everyone around us in the world is telling us and help us to be servants right where we are, our workplace, our work table, bench, counter, at home, our kitchen, wherever we are, to just give ourselves away. And uh, we look forward to that time when we stand before you and you say to us, that we're your beloved sons and you're well pleased with us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.